Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And we think you deserve to understand the Oristaya. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Oristaya and Chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we are going to summarize a play from the Oristaya, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. If you don't need a summary, feel free to skip ahead. On this episode, we're summarizing the play Agamemnon, and our fancy person is Dr. Lynn Kozak, Associate Professor at McGill University in Montreal. Agamemnon, Scene 1 The play begins on the roof of King Agamemnon's palace at Argos, where the watchman lies gazing into the night sky. Well, he's not just stargazing. He's been waiting for news from the war for a year. Has he been on the roof for a year, or is there like a rotation of watch people? Who's to say? As he's wondering what's been going on at Troy, and giving the audience some convenient exposition, he sees a beacon. Here's the thing about the beacon, and this may not work for everyone. For those of you who've seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know that scene in The Return of the King when some city is in trouble and some hobbit dude with long hair lights a beacon, and then on the next mountaintop, another dude with long hair sees it and lights his beacon? And then on the next mountaintop, a bunch of other dudes with long hair subsequently light their beacons to send a distress signal between two cities? Well, it's like that. In this case, the beacon tells the Watchmen that the Greeks and their allies conquered Troy and won the Trojan War. And that means that the city of Argos has been waiting for this beacon for 10 years. So would this beacon method work with like an overcast sky? It's the Mediterranean. I think we're counting on clear skies. Anyway, the watchman climbs down from the roof to wake Queen Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, to let her know that her husband is probably coming home from the war soon. A group of old men, who are the council members and aides to the queen, known from now on as the chorus, enters. The chorus speaks to the audience and provides a ton of exposition that goes something like this. Number one, the war started ten years ago because Helen ran away with Paris or was kidnapped by him, still a debate. Number two, the members of the chorus were too old and weak to go to war, so they stayed behind. The chorus turns to the palace and addresses Queen Clytemnestra. Who is not present on stage, by the way, but they address her all the same. To address their third point. They basically ask her to stop the commotion because they don't believe that Troy has fallen. Number four, a prophecy has decreed that Troy would fall eventually, but not before a lot of bloodshed. And here's a big piece of backstory that you're supposed to already know. Artemis the goddess of hunters and wild beasts, loves Troy. So this prophecy does not sit well with her. 
And as a god, she cannot change the outcome of a prophecy, but she can toy with the people in it. So she messed up the winds to make it impossible for Agamemnon to sail to Troy. In order to appease her, Agamemnon sacrificed his own daughter Iphigenia because killing your child is an acceptable way of apologizing around here. There are other versions of that rivalry, but the outcome is the same. Agamemnon slit his daughter's throat on a sacrificial altar. Or thinks he does. Ah! The chorus ends their address by telling us that they can only tell us the past, but cannot predict the future. Scene 2. Okay, back to the present. Clytemnestra finally enters. She greets the chorus and announces the news that Troy has fallen. The chorus asks where she got this information because it could just be a rumor. Now Clytemnestra is pretty insulted by this and explains in great detail how the beacon works, where each fire is located, and when Troy would have been conquered in order for the fire to reach Argos that night. The chorus can't argue with that, so they accept her reply. Although, they still don't really believe her because women haven't been believed since time immemorial. Clytemnestra then goes into a long prayer for the victors to make it home safely, but she lays it on a little too thick so one could start to doubt the honesty of her sentiment. She also gives us some backstory on how the war started, you know, the whole Paris and Helen saga once again. You're gonna hear this a lot. By the end of her spiel, it seems as though she's now doubting whether the message sent by the beacon is true or not, and ends with a sort of tesarasara attitude. Scene 3. A herald enters and announces the Greek victory over Troy and Agamemnon's return home. Clytemnestra pipes up and is like, Duh, I told you there was a victory. I saw the fire, but nobody believed me. You start to get the feeling that it must have sucked to be a smart woman in Argos. The Herald starts to tell the story of the Greek victory, but Clytemnestra stops him because she'd rather hear the play-by-play from her husband. She also asks the Herald to tell Agamemnon to come home ASAP, and he will find his faithful wife in his house happy to welcome him home. Then she leaves. Like a boss. The chorus asks the Herald for news of Menelaus and more gruesome war details. After all, they've been starved for royal gossip for ten years. New character alert! Menelaus was Helen's husband before the Paris affair. Helen is Clytemnestra's sister, and Menelaus is Agamemnon's brother. So there is a ton of drama in this family. Were there only two families in Greece? The Herald replies that it's not good form to discuss bad news after delivering good news, but then tells them of the war horrors anyway. Heralds tend to like to hear themselves talk. It's a common failing in the profession. The Herald concludes that Menelaus is lost at sea, and will hopefully make it home. Spoiler alert, he does make it home, but that's another podcast. The Herald leaves the chorus alone to ponder for a really long time about Helen. Choruses in Greek tragedies tend to ponder, reminisce, and dither at length. Especially when they're made up of old men. In this reflection, the chorus discusses a few things. First, the etymology of the name Helen. This is important because even though etymology was in its very early stages at that time, the Greeks placed a lot of importance on the root of a name and linked it to a person's fate. In Helen's case, the root hele means kill or destroy. And while this would have been powerful knowledge before the war started 10 years ago, at this point, it's more of a hindsight is 2020 situation than a philosophical claim. Second, there's a story about an orphan lion cub that was taken in by people. The cub was gentle, but in time it learned violence from humans. Wait a minute. Is the lion cub supposed to be a metaphor? 
Is it a metaphor for Helen? Clytemnestra? Greece? What's going on? The chorus thinks they're telling a story about Helen, but the audience hears it as a story about Clytemnestra. And third, there's somehow a conclusion that a man's pride is in his offspring and that justice guides everything to its appointed end. How the hell did they get there? You have to remember that these are old men, and they're bound to wander off the point. Scene 4. At the end of this pondering, the much-awaited King Agamemnon finally arrives on a chariot. With Cassandra, who will not be addressed for a while. And who's this Cassandra chick, you ask? New character alert! Well, she's his new concubine. Alright, let's back up to the Trojan War. So Paris, of the Paris and Helen saga, is the son of Priam, king of Troy. Cassandra is one of Paris's sisters. She was a beautiful girl, much intrigued by prophecy and divination. She caught the eye of Apollo, who had a penchant for mortal women and wanted to sleep with her. In some versions of the myth, Cassandra promised to sleep with Apollo in exchange for the gift of prophecy, but then went back on her word. In other versions, he gave her the gift as an enticement to sleep with him, and she was not enticed. Either way, Apollo cursed her. She had the gift to see the future, but never to be believed. Okay, this pattern of not believing women is getting really old and we're not even in medieval times yet. But wait, how did people watching this play know all of that when she just showed up? The Trojan myth cycle was everywhere in Greek culture and was constantly being remade and retold in different forms. Kind of like traditional fairy tales or folk tales today. There are about a million different retellings of Cinderella, for example. Back to the story. The chorus welcomes the great King Agamemnon recently returned from an epic victory and asks how to appropriately address such a hero. Agamemnon states that it wasn't all him. The gods had a hand in his safe return from Priam City. Okay, quick note. Troy is interchangeably referenced under several names, including Ilium, Priam City, and of course, Troy. Clytemnestra enters and sees her husband. She addresses the crowd as she greets her husband because tragic Greek characters were performative like that. In this address, she speaks of... Number one, the great love she has for her husband, the quote, immense grief, and the loneliness she felt waiting for him to return from the war. If you're familiar with Homer's The Odyssey and or have listened to our podcast Odyssey and Chill, please listen to our podcast. This sentiment should remind you of Penelope, but more on that later. Number two, she says how worried she was by the traveling rumors of all the wounds Agamemnon had suffered during the war and was afraid he would be, quote, riddled with more holes than a net. Number three, the rumors led to, quote, many nooses being tied around her neck, implying how dangerous Argos became at the idea that its king had perished. This should also conjure up Penelope a little bit. Number four, due to this danger, their son Orestes is not at home right now. Foreshadowing! Number five, she asks Agamemnon to descend from his chariot and for the maids to lay down purple fabric so that he may walk on it as he goes into his house. There are a few things to note about this scene. To start, purple dye is expensive, like really costly during this period of time. This is one truly epic welcome mat and a serious act of conspicuous consumption. Also, you know how gross you feel when you've been traveling and living out of a suitcase for a long time and you finally come home? Well, Agamemnon has been doing that for 10 years and probably hasn't done a lot of bathing since he started sailing home. 
So he is going to ruin this cloth, or at least ensure that it needs to be seriously laundered. Ew. And lastly, a long purple cloth kind of looks like a long river of blood. Just saying. Foreshadowing! Agamemnon is moved by his wife's words and says the length of her speech matches that of his absence. That sounds a little backhanded. It is. It's also a comment on how clever she is, and no one is ever really comfortable with a clever woman in the Greek world. Or, like, now. He asks her not to honor him like a god because that would cause envy from others, which could be dangerous. Clytemnestra refutes this. She coyly asks Agamemnon, wouldn't Priam have welcomed honors had he won the war? And insists such a victory calls for honors and celebrations. Agamemnon agrees, even if he finds it all wasteful, and asks that Clytemnestra watch that, quote, no eyes envy strike me from afar, because he's really paranoid. Honestly, he probably should have been more worried about coming home with a concubine after murdering his own daughter than ruining purple fabric, but sometimes people just can't see what's staring them right in the face. The reunited husband and wife exit into the palace. While they were walking and talking. Scene 5. The chorus and Cassandra left on stage, an awkward third and fourth wheel to the reunion. They express a sentiment that danger is in the air. Jeez, what gave it away? Clytemnestra comes back out to ask Cassandra to come into the palace. Since Cassandra's been Agamemnon's sex slave, she's practically part of the family. Holidays have got to be awkward for this bunch. Cassandra doesn't reply, so Clytemnestra is like, Hello, anyone there? And Cassandra still doesn't reply or move, so Clytemnestra is like, oh well, and goes back in. Maybe she doesn't speak Greek. Let's be honest, this was probably the smart move. When you're the captive sex slave to an army captain who was willing to kill his own daughter to appease a goddess, chances are when his wife invites you inside, to quote Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. We are such nerds. Scene 6. As soon as Queen Clytemnestra leaves, Cassandra utters a cry of woe, and the chorus is like, You okay? She repeatedly invokes Zeus and desperately cries that she has been brought to a house of sin, and this will bring her demise. But remember, Cassandra has been cursed so that no one will believe her, no matter how clearly she speaks. Not even a vaguely omniscient chorus? Not even a vaguely omniscient chorus. She is so convinced that she is fated to die there that she doesn't believe there's even a point in trying to escape. So Cassandra enters the house and resolutely seals her fate. Scene 7 As the chorus is left alone to ponder the situation, a cry is heard off stage. Agamemnon has been stabbed. Bye-bye title character! After the second strike, his loud and final cry is heard. Rip. The chorus debates on the appropriate course of action. Revenge? Go inside and see what happened? Remember, in Greek tragedy, the chorus can't really take part in the action. They serve not so much as a character in the play, but as an interpreter and surrogate for the audience. Just as we fruitlessly shout at horror movie characters not to go up into the attic, the chorus cannot prevent the mythic story from playing out, but they serve to heighten our anticipation as we wait. Scene 8. Clytemnestra comes into view standing over the dead bodies of Agamemnon and Cassandra. Hold up, is she carrying the bodies? It's unclear. Traditionally, in Greek tragedies, the bodies were wheeled out on stage. Oh right, it's a play. She confidently declares that whatever she said before was untrue and she has no shame in now saying the opposite. 
So she admits that she killed Agamemnon and Cassandra. Two stabs killed Agamemnon, but she added a third one just in case. The chorus asks why she would commit such an evil act. Clytemnestra accuses the chorus of judging her for killing her husband when he was the one who killed their daughter Iphigenia. And Cassandra, well, she was his lover, so she had to go too. The chorus blames Helen for starting the war, instead of, you know, blaming the men who actually violently overtook cities, pillaged, raped, and murdered. At this, Clytemnestra tells the chorus to stop blaming Helen for the horrid actions of men who couldn't resist starting a war. Thank you! The chorus then asks her again if she really feels no remorse for killing her husband, to which she replies, No, like I said, he killed our daughter, so he had it coming. She also orders that there be no mourning for him. He'll meet Iphigenia in the great beyond, and we'll have to deal with his actions then. Scene 9. Next, in comes Aegisthus, whom we haven't seen before. New character alert! But this story is so famous that Aeschylus' audience would have known who he was in a heartbeat. Here's the background. While Agamemnon has been gone, Aegisthus has been Clytemnestra's lover. In some versions, he also becomes the surrogate ruler because Clytemnestra, being a woman, can't rule in her own right, just as Penelope couldn't legitimately rule while Odysseus was gone in the Odyssey. We get it. You love Penelope. Who doesn't? In this version, Clytemnestra rules jointly with the Council of Elders, aka the Chorus. Remember when we said this family must have had complicated holidays? Trust us, this story gets a lot weirder. Aegisthus declares that justice has been served with Agamemnon's death. Let's go through this logic real fast. Aegisthus and Agamemnon are cousins. Their fathers, Thyestes and Atreus, were brothers. Like a lot of brothers in Greek mythology, they were competitive. In this case, it got a little bit out of hand when an argument over a golden ram ended up with Atreus feeding Thyestes a bunch of Thyestes' own children for dinner and then expelled him from the city. Like, okay, but ew. Keep in mind that in this period, cycles of vengeance tend to continue over multiple generations, so according to Aegisthus, justice has been served by having the villain's son killed. Aegisthus then declares that the killing of Agamemnon was his idea, but Clytemnestra carried it out. The chorus doesn't buy it. To them, stabbing is a manly style of killing, and according to the misogynistic logic of this period, should have been carried out by a man. Despite their outrage at Agamemnon's death, the chorus accuses Aegisthus of cowardice for not killing Agamemnon himself. It gets heated between them. Now that Agamemnon is out of the way, Aegisthus gets to marry Clytemnestra and rule Argos. He warns the chorus not to piss him off or he'll come after them. The chorus, in turn, warned that Orestes, Agamemnon and Clytemnestra's only son, who has been raised far away, might someday return and avenge his father. Sequel alert! Note, if Orestes returned, he would be obligated to kill Aegisthus, his father's killer, and take over Argos as the legitimate king. Clytemnestra asked them to stop the fighting and to not shed any more blood that day. Given that she's the real power in Argos, she knows that she'll determine the fates of both Aegisthus and the chorus. So basically, this petty squabbling is completely irrelevant, and ineffectual. She also might not have been pleased about the mention of Orestes. Orestes is her son, and she loves him, but because he's bound to avenge his father's death, he's going to have to kill his mommy. The men stand down, but they don't shake hands, and the verbal threats continue. Clytemnestra hushes everyone and declares that Aegisthus and her will rule the house for good. The end.
we're sitting with Lynn Kozak, who works at McGill University, and they're super into Greek epic and tragedy in performance, having translated, directed, performed in, and collaborated on many productions over the past decade in Montreal. They also research TV. They translated and directed, along with David Whiteside and Karina Delcourt, Aeschylus' Agamemnon in 2011 for the inaugural McGill Classics play, performed in Montreal's Sala Rosa. Hey, Lynn. Thanks for doing this. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we just jump in? Um, we both, Darby and I watched your, um, the, the YouTube link that you had sent us for, from your production. And I guess I'll just go ahead with the first question. I just want some context. Like, where was it produced? Who were the actors? Was it part of a class? Yeah, so it was my first year at McGill, and I had really wanted to start a student um, a student production, an annual student production, because I had been part of student productions in my undergraduate. I had been part of the Barnard Columbia Greek play, um, and then had actually gone and trained in London with David Wiles uh, to learn a bit more about the performance of Greek drama. So I was, I was really excited about doing it. Um, and I really wanted to do the Agamemnon as a challenge because it's just such a difficult but badass play, which I'm sure we'll talk more about in a little bit. And then, of course, I found out that we couldn't afford to do it on campus, that to do it on campus in the theater was like $10,000. And I went to a really cool rock show uh, at the Sala Rosa, which is a, a small concert venue in Montreal, which is just like red walls and Baroque decoration and I was like this is where we're gonna do our Agamemnon because it's so like <laughs> you know heavy metal <laughs> uh and you know As they were 300 bucks been to the Sala Rosa, I love that place <laughs> and they were 300 bucks a night so we could afford to do it um and then yeah all the actors are students um it's kind of crazy to think that it's it's 10 years ago now. So some of them have, you know, gone on to all different kinds of things. And and one of the the people who's actually playing guitar on stage is actually now one of my colleagues. So awesome. So there's there's kind of cool. And then I, we also translated it with uh, I translated it with two students, David Whiteside and Karina DeClerc. Um, but we also translated it with input from a whole group of students. So it's it's a student production. Um, it's not one of the professional productions I've collaborated on, but it's still one of my favorites, I have to say. Why Agamemnon? I think that Agamemnon, um, the, the language in Agamemnon, I think is, is some of the hardest, but most visceral and most awesome and not in the kind of generic American way that I always use awesome, but like awesome in terms of awe inspiring <laughs> um, text that we have. I think the language is so dense and so imagistic. And I think that the story itself is so visceral and has so many components of horror um, that it's just, it's a, it's a play. It's always been one of my favorite plays and I thought it would be a real challenge. And the centrality of the chorus as well was something that I was really looking forward to in terms of direction, because I, I actually think that the Agamemnon is, is the chorus's tragedy. So those were some of the things that were definitely in my head as I chose the play. Cool. 
Yeah. So this is something that I wanted to follow up on a bit. So obviously the language of Aeschylus is incredibly dramatic. I think I remember one of my professors in undergrad describing it as leaking images because it was sort of overfull of the way that he did that. Um, but there are so many other versions of this myth that are a little bit more accessible for a contemporary audience. And uh, so like thinking Sophocles is Electra, for example, we get a sort of more accessible version of this kind of story. So why the why this particular version of the Agamemnon story? What's compelling about it particularly to you? I think... I, I guess I would push back a little bit on on its accessibility because I think that there are a lot of elements in the Agamemnon that are super accessible. I think that centrality of the chorus is actually a real portal in for an audience um, in terms of witnessing, processing, attempting to intervene in and failing in this violence, which is not something we get very often in Greek tragedy. And I think that that's something that's really cool and very challenging. I also think that um, Clytemnestra is kind of an all-time revenge hero. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, we love her. And She's you know, I, I just I find her so compelling, and I find her celebration of her murder and her elevation within the myth, um, because of course not every version of the myth has her actually dealing the fatal blows. It's usually Aegisthus that has more of a central central role, and Aegisthus has this kind of like much weaker follow-up role in the Agamemnon. Um, and I think that the because the language is so visceral, I think that on the page it might be less accessible, but I think that when it's performed, I think that there's actually something quite... Um, when you're allowed to imagine it rather than than see it um, just in, in words, I think that there is something that's very immersive about it as a as a performed text. And I just I love the Agamemnon. The only I mean the, the only thing I would say that I don't like about the Agamemnon is how long Aegisthus gets at the end. I think that back and forth mm. between the chorus and Aegisthus is kind of interminable. And when we cut it significantly, it, up, and it was and it was still not short enough. Um, but I think that the the lead up is just incredible. I think it's it builds so much tension, and I think it's such a clear prototype for how we understand the horror genre. What's it like to stage these? You know, what any tidbits of like interesting things that you've run into or fun discoveries that you've made? Um, I wish that it was easier to describe and articulate the immense value that comes from staging Greek tragedy. And it's something that I struggle with all the time professionally. Um, you know, and I, I think about it. Like, like none of the, the direction or translation or any of the performance work that I, I did counted as research towards my tenure, right? Like none, none of it counts. And part of it, I think, is that it's not understood as serious intellectual work. But I can't even begin to understand a play anymore until I at least heard it read aloud at the, at the minimum. And then it's once you get it on its feet and start to move things around and start to understand where sight lines are and start to understand what positionality means and proximity means and start to understand the effect that bodies have in space, 
not only in relation to each other, but in relation to the audience, there is so much that comes alive. And actually, I, I miss it quite quite intensely because I, I don't direct these big tragedies anymore. And the only performance work that I've done in the last few years is all is all in Homer and Homeric epics. So it, it's in a way there's there's some of that, but when you only have one person as opposed to a chorus and the incredible possibilities that directing a chorus presents, um, I, I just can't say enough about it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm being vague, but I'm... Not really. I think, I mean, you said it was difficult to articulate. I think you articulated it quite well, actually. And I think, I mean, as a, as a theater person, I think, I think that of all plays, you know, I mean, they are written to be staged. And I think particularly these these ancient texts that come from, you know, another world almost are so much easier to understand when they're at the very least read out loud and spoken. That makes sense to me. And I would imagine that for your students, there was incredible value in having to navigate the text that way rather than simply reading it. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I've really given them everything now, you know, and why I think it's important that they're not only translating, but they're directing these plays because, you know, in making those choices, not just linguistic choices, but making the making casting choices, making venue choices, making production choices, making staging choices and blocking choices, every single one of those is is another moment of intellectual interpretation as well as artistic expression. And it gives so much layering to the experience of a text. I mean, I, I feel so strongly now that you can only really understand a text if you've performed it. So I, I was curious from watching this about the, the costuming, specifically of the chorus, um, because I mean, obviously you're having students that are playing a group of old men that are supposed to be counselors and they seem to be in this kind of like formal wear. Um, and I was curious, like, whether you made some of those choices because of the particular venue that you had and the kind of sort of Baroque scene or what you were doing with the costuming and, and what kind of choices you made for it. Yeah, so the aesthetic was, I mean, I was basically just listening to Them Crooked Vultures on repeat. Uh, I don't know if you know Them Crooked Vultures, who are a super group of John Paul Jones, Josh Homme, and Dave Grohl. And if I showed you the cover of their album, you know, it's like a red background with a black and white uh person in a black and white suit with a vulture head and so I was like okay you know we're we're going to be in this awesome red space and I was thinking reservoir dogs as well um especially that comes across yeah especially for the chorus because I was thinking about like well what does it mean to just have these these kind of like nameless people who are all in these identical outfits I mean of course in reservoir dogs they have names that are colors but they don't have real names right um who are fulfilling this this function within this really violent landscape uh yeah so that's that's what we went with i just i went for this kind of um hard rock reservoir dogs aesthetic through and through <laughs> that's and just awesome. put every just put everybody in suits it was also super cheap right because most people had right most people had uh clothes that they could, you know, either black pants or a black blazer that they either had or, or could borrow. I'm interested in, in 
something that you said that I've heard before. You said this was the first time this had happened in the in the classics department, and it's not the first time I hear that when there's a production within a classics department that it's the first time that it happens. And given that we're talking about all these texts that are meant to be performed, why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I mean, I I was actually just talking to my, my colleague, uh, George Kovach, uh, who's at Trent in um, Ontario. You know, he does a classics play every year. We were kind of talking about, like, why aren't there more classics plays? Because even, even in the university context where you know, there's kind of a safe history of this is where dramatic reception takes place in the university from the end of the 19th century onwards, right? Um, at least in the Anglophone sphere, there's still probably only kind of a dozen uh, around the world annual classics plays in the university contexts. So yeah, I, I don't know why there's that discouragement. And I think there is... Some of it probably is a, a history of gatekeeping. I think some of it is just a lack of experience. I think a lot of it is, you know, when we're trained as philologists, we're trained for textual analysis. We're not trained to understand performance as a dimension to these texts in the same way. And I'm not saying that that's universal, but for the most part, you know, we are trained as philologists and, and we're trained for close reading, which has served me very well in many other <laughs> ways in which I, I certainly don't... Um, begrudge oh, it that training has value yeah but mm -hmm. it, it's um I don't know and and you know it's funny because I was also coming to it from somebody who always wanted to be in drama but every time I auditioned I never made it into a play right so like there were always like the cool drama kids at my school and I was like I was really on the outside so I kind of like snuck into theater through the classics back door <laughs> Um, which is good for you. Which is why why we've you know kept the classics play as, as something that anybody can be in, and that you don't have to have a, a theater background either. And so you know, it's really just about opening up these opportunities, I think, and creating those spaces. So we've been talking a little bit about Homer, um, and so I'm interested because I know that you have written um, about Homeric fandom in tragedy. Um, and reinterpretations of Homer in the tragic texts. So I'm wondering uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about Aeschylus's different choices that he makes than the stories that we hear both sort of from the Iliad, but in, in greater part from the Odyssey um, and the interaction with uh, Aeschylus's interpretation of the Agamemnon saga. So for example, we mentioned this earlier in Homer's version, I guess this is the killer, but in Aeschylus's version, he turns Clytemnestra into the killer and he makes, I guess, this into this sort of side character that steals the stage for a little while at the end of the play. Um, so what do you think about the sort of choices that are being made in the interaction between these two authors? Well, I think in some ways Aeschylus is amplifying the danger that the Odyssey is presenting in the possibility of a Clytemnestra waiting at home, right? So right. even while Clytemnestra isn't the the killer um, in the Odyssey, the the repetitive nature of that story in the Odyssey and how clearly it serves as a counterpoint uh, to Odysseus's own homecoming. And as a kind of anticipatory, oh no, this might be what happens, you better watch out, right? I think that 
uh, in some ways, Aeschylus is exploring that to its fullest extent of like, okay, well, what happens if we actually have a kind of supervillain wife who is hell-bent on revenge waiting at home for you? And I think that also in creating um, this Clytemnestra, you know, I think she's an incredibly compelling figure. And she Heck has... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she has so much rhetorical and linguistic ability at the same time that you understand the depths of her rage and her loss and the counterpoint there of her joy. I mean, that that's one of my favorite speeches when she comes out and says, hell yes, I did it. You know, three times I struck him. And, and when she talks about rejoicing in the blood, um, you know, like corn re rejoices in the first rains. You're just like, oh my God, this is so crazy and amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's quite the image. In Homer, we see Clytemnestra becomes an evil figure because she's corrupted, right? The bard who is supposed to protect her virtue as a wife gets sent away and marooned on an island by Augustus. And we have her as being, instead of corrupted, just enraged by the sacrifice of her daughter in a very different way in Aeschylus. And, and so we see a lot more strength. Um, whereas, you know, Penelope, I guess, because the suitors are there, it's really important to have that contrast of being corrupted by the men in your house versus not being corrupted by the men in your house um, in an interesting way. Uh, but yeah, Clytemnestra has so much agency in Aeschylus's version um, and is is a really compelling character um, and does, I don't know, to me, sort of she feels like a, a real hero rather than an anti-hero in the Agamemnon. I'm not sure how you sort of portrayed her in this hard rock version of the performance that you did. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's definitely, she is is definitely a kind of hero slash anti-hero um, she's the person you're rooting for, for sure. And we, you know, we gave her the last, the last word of the play and she's the one who basically tells Aegisthus to shut up after this kind of interminable back and forth between the chorus and him. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I would have loved to have done the whole trilogy. <laughs> we, we closed out on Led Zeppelin's Your Time Is Gonna Come with Clytemnestra standing. Awesome. <laughs> set, like triumphant center stage. Um, but, you know, I, I think about the fact that this is one of our own, I mean, it's our only extant trilogy and understanding that character arc of what it means to have this moment of triumph and revenge that is only then met with um, betrayal and failure and death and the pathos that that brings. I mean, I, I think that you really have this incredible character arc through the trilogy for Clytemnestra, um, that just ripples. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I think Aeschylus did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he, he likes, I think he's, he's responding to Homer, but in a way that is giving Clytemnestra a whole new depth, a whole new, a whole new life. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering about if you can say a little bit more about this comparison between Penelope and Clytemnestra. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're, they're not as structurally opposed as you might think. I think that there are moments of ambivalence in the portrayal of Penelope that are super interesting. Um, I think that her dream about the geese and the eagle and the fact that she weeps 
when the geese are killed by the eagle, I'm always really compelled by that because I don't know that it speaks to any genuine affection that she has for the suitors, but I think that it does speak to some appreciation of the horror that Odysseus's slaughter of the suitors brings. Because anyone who thinks the Odyssey has a happy ending is a psychopath. <laughs> I have, we have a couple of questions that we were asking everybody. Um, and the first one is, what's your favorite translation of the Oresteia? And you can say your own. <laughs> yeah, I don't have one. And I, I wish I did. You know, people always ask me for translation recommendations. And I always struggle with them because I always do my own translations. Um, so yeah, I do. I really like ours. And I do actually often assign ours. Um, I always encourage people to to read through a few pages. You know, like just read the first page of whatever translations are available at the bookstore and feel which one you can vibe with what speaks you know? to you absolutely yeah do you have a favorite line scene or speech in the oristia and if you do what is it my first favorite section is definitely that part in the pardos where they're describing the the slaughter of iphigenia um where they describe her being held upside down and her saffron robe spilling over the altar and her mouth gagged and they talk about her silent as though in a painting, right? And so it's this incredible picture of vulnerability as she looks at all of these men around her. Um, and then you have this kind of flashback of, of her singing to these men in, her, in the halls of her father's house. I mean, it's just one of the most haunting depictions of, of violence, especially violence against a, a woman, um, that I think we have and the pathos that the chorus feels in that moment is so intense. And the fact that they have to look away, they can't tell you what happens next. I think that that's just an incredible moment. Um, and then, yeah, the other moment I, I love, I love Clytemnestra's celebration. I love that line about her, her being splattered with the blood and, um, and exulting like, like when, the the rain first hits the dry crops you know like that somehow this this murder and this blood splatter has has allowed her to become you know and there's something that is hideously beautiful about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i i think that i mean it's it's particularly interesting because iphigenia is supposed to be silent in a painting because she's gagged and prevented from uttering any sound and so we see clytemnestra sort of giving the exultant sound to her it's it's her retribution that she was unable to utter and unable to curse the people that were sacrificing her so yeah that's a really it's a, it's a great sort of pair of favorites for that reason I yeah think. and the way that she describes it as a sacrifice right with the three strikes and and that right. it has all these ritual elements to it um it, you know it, it's there's just so many perfect kind of narrative elements in how and how the play pays off the Orsai can be can be a challenging text for students. What's one reason that you think it's worthwhile to read it? 
I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, I think besides all the things that we've talked about in terms of the Agamemnon being especially badass in terms of its poetic language and its characterization, you know, it, it, this is going to be a cheesy anecdote, but one of the things that really struck me, I mean, the humanities is awful in its own misogynistic interpretation of what a father is <laughs> and, you know, that, that women are only mere vessels and that bullshit. But the fact that we have this progression from a, a cycle of violent vengeance to something that is actually legally, you know, to, to a system of justice, right? So from vengeance to justice. I think that that's incredible. And there was a moment when I was actually marking papers on the Agamemnon. And again, this is, uh, you know, whatever it was 10 years ago. And, you know, President Obama comes out walking down a long red carpet. And he, <laughs> he comes out to announce that Osama bin Laden has been killed. And there was a moment... Wow you know, where I had, I was literally reading uh, an essay that was celebrating this evolution of the Oristaya from blood vengeance to a, a, a civic system of justice. And of course, in Agamemnon, a red carpet features heavily. So I, I was, I was, I was really, there was this real moment of being struck by what that moment meant, because it was a moment of, of vengeance and not of justice. Um, within a contemporary civic space or a civic sphere. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that those those things are, are constantly, I mean, I think we see it right now too in, in the, the violence that's been going on in the States in protests. And, um, you know, there, there have been a lot of... There have been a, a lot of deaths, and there is obviously a huge systemic racism and issues with our, our justice system as well. So, you know, I think these questions of how do we move forward from violence and how do we find something that is just and that serves us as, as, as equals within a civic structure, I think that those questions never, never go away, unfortunately. The myth told in the Oristia is referenced nine separate times in the Odyssey. Why is the connection between these two stories so important? Well, I really think in the Odyssey, it's just about like making sure that you come home to a wife who's not going to kill you. I think that's... <laughs> right. <laughs> that does seem important, sure. <laughs> but the fact that in the Odyssey, that whole narrative is only to ensure that you can come home to then kill a whole bunch of other people... I'm not really sure <laughs> where the value <laughs> in that moral lesson lies. <laughs> but I think in terms of narrative effect, it builds anticipation consistently, right? That there's this constant tension of what Odysseus's homecoming might mean in parallel to or in contrast with Agamemnon's and how disastrous his homecoming is. Yeah, and, and I mean, maybe what you were saying about justice and answer to the previous question is something that comes up here because no matter what we think of Odysseus's sort of vengeance, it is incredibly grotesque and violent and it ends in this massive amount of bloodshed and Athena has to step in to stop the continued warfare um, because of this massive amount of bloodshed. And we, we see her coming in, but by instead of just stopping and preventing it from happening in the in the in the Orsaya, we get the institution of that justice system that's supposed to help solve things so that there aren't cycles of violence in the future. So yeah, maybe that's a sort of 
also yeah i think that's a great a great point right that we have these two interventions from athena but one is a true deus ex machina that solves nothing and one is an intervention that at least attempts to to move a, a system of justice into place what a perfect, perfect place uh, to to wrap it up. That's incredible. I thank you so much for doing this, Lynn. Yeah, this was so great. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks so much for having me. Oristian Chill is made possible by Illuminations at the University of California, Irvine. Special shout out to Julia Lupton, our forever queen, Phil and Katie Friedel for their incredible generosity, and special thanks to Vinnie Oliveri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction.